Hello, and we have another podcast here on You Say You Want a Revolutionary. If you like these, click subscribe on iTunes there, leave a little review, uh, give me a little star rating there if you would. We've got one of my favorite philosophers from the 20th century today. Not really a revolutionary person, perhaps, in terms of wearing camo and fatigues and picking up a gun at any point in time, but she is definitely a revolutionary thinker. Born January 9th, 1908, Simone de Beauvoir was a gifted intellect from really, really early on. Her dad, when she was growing up, used to give her all these edited portions of like great literary works that were age-appropriate and a little advanced to try to push her. He always stressed the importance of reading and education. Beauvoir always wanted to be a writer and a teacher and was never really interested in being a mom or a wife and didn't want like babies to to take care of or little carriages or you know never did any of that stuff as a girl she pursued her studies pretty relentlessly she began her education at a private school for girls and uh, she had been a deeply religious child her mother was extremely religious but around the age of 14 she had kind of this crisis of faith kind of decided definitively right there that she didn't believe in God and she never went back she remained an atheist forever She remained at this private school until she was about 17 years old. And it was here that she met a young woman named Zaza and uh, had a close kind of intimate relationship with Zaza until she died at the age of 29 of meningitis. This is kind of going to haunt her life for the rest of her life. And it had a huge impact on her. She passed her her university, her BA, her her baccalaureate um, in mathematics and philosophy in 1925. In 1926, she passed in French literature and in Latin. In 1927, she began studying philosophy at the Sorbonne, and she passed her exams in uh, history of philosophy, general philosophy, Greek, logic, ethics, sociology, and psychology, all by 1928. She wrote her dissertation on Leibniz, and she is a towering intellect. In 1929, she got second place in this exam they have in France, this philosophy aggregation exam. She got second place at 21 years old. She got second place to Jean-Paul Sartre, right? She was the youngest student ever to pass this philosophy exam. It's kind of like a national ranking for all graduate students, for all students that are coming out of university, right? It's really competitive. And most of the people there take a a prep course in in this test, like anyone would do for like an MCAT or an LSAT or a GRE here. You take a prep course, or SATs if you're American. Um, but it's not at a high school, this is out of university. So you take a prep course and then you go and write this test. She didn't take the prep course. She went in cold. Everyone else, including Sartre, had taken this prep course and she just kind of came in off the street, got second place, ranked second in the country. She became one of nine women to have ever passed this this test at the time and the youngest person to ever pass this test. Now, after meeting Sartre, uh, after they wrote this test together, they were pretty much to remain together in and out of each other's lives um, for the rest of their lives. They allowed for these other relationships whenever they wanted. They never got married. Sartre did propose at one time, and uh, Beauvoir shot him down. And they kind of remained together, never had children, never really lived together. But this is pretty progressive, obviously, for the time. To make it even more... Uh, unique, I guess, to regular white bread society. Simone de Beauvoir had intimate relationships with both men and women the entire time that they were together, right? She taught in France, 
between 1931 and 43, and she was dismissed for corrupting a female student. She had been seducing and sleeping with a 17-year-old female student. When the girl's parents found out, they, uh, of course, were outraged, talked to the school board, and had her teaching license revoked permanently. Together with Sartre and a number of other uh, leading French intellectuals at the time, she helped found uh, the politically non-affiliated sort of leftist journal Le Temps Moderne in 1945, and she edited and contributed to this thing forever. She wasn't really a socialist or a communist, I guess. she It's kind of hard to classify her politically. She was clearly influenced by Marx and his ideas. She held kind of these broad sweeping socialist principles. She visited China and Cuba and Russia, but was very critical of the USSR as this failed promise of equality. She was anti-colonialist. She was a critic, a huge critic of the French-Algerian War. And uh, check out a previous episode on Franz Fanon if you want to know more about that nonsensical conflict. Um, But I want to move on here to one of my favorite works by Simone de Beauvoir, and it's called The Ethics of Ambiguity. It is, if you're looking for a basic understanding of existentialism, it is a great jumping-off point. It's one of my favorite works, and one of the easiest points, actually, to understand French existentialism. What she's saying in The Ethics of Ambiguity is that people are fundamentally free. This is a freedom that comes from nothingness. Finger quotes there. Nothingness is an essential aspect of our um, ability to be self-aware. We are a thing. We're an actual thing. We exist, right? Um, The ambiguity is that all of us are both a subject and an object. We are free to do what we want, but we have all these outside things that are imposing themselves on us, right? We're constrained by limits, by social barriers, by expectations, and by the political power of others, right? We don't necessarily have the ability to do everything that we want to do, but that doesn't mean that we're just slaves in some sort of system. She goes on to say that there really is no absolute goodness or moral imperative that exists outside of our existence. There's no, her quote, there exists no absolute value before the passion of man outside of it in relation to which one might distinguish the useless from useful. Uh, These kind of statements, uh, they form the basis of the existential idea that human existence precedes essence. This is a big quote in existentialism. Existence precedes essence. Right? This is the idea that for human beings, there's no predefined pattern that we have to fit into. We live our lives, and that in turn defines who we truly are not any idealized set of characteristics, not any, like, human nature. This idea is kind of at the heart of all existentialism. She is suggesting that ethical behavior is the result of conscious choices, right? There are no absolute standards of morality. There's no one, as an atheist, obviously, there's no God sitting there saying, this is right and this is wrong. There's no one outside of us telling us what is objectively right and objectively wrong. We are defining that every day. There's no such thing as human nature. We, through our actions, are defining human nature every day. And whoever comes after us can redefine that as they see fit. According to uh, Beauvoir, many people, like children, are indoctrinated to believe that there is this objective set of morals independent of their own mind. She calls this category of people, quote, the serious man one who goes through life in this kind of perpetual state of childhood because he is taking for granted that his freedom is less important 
than an imposed set of values that someone just gave him. She juxtaposes this with what she calls the sub-man, who is this guy who doesn't necessarily really even think about freedom and just assumes that it doesn't exist. She also talks about uh, the nihilist, right, as a delusioned, serious man who's decided that nothing is worth valuing at all because of the fact that he has this freedom. You hear people levy this criticism against existentialism fairly regularly, that if everything is up to individuals to decide what's important, then nothing matters at all, right? Well, that's not what Beauvoir or Sartre are saying at all. Things matter. Things matter a lot. It's just we are deciding when things are important. It's the acceptance of our responsibility, not just that these rules are imposed upon us from above. We are deciding what morality is. This leads her directly into an area of discussion that I always find kind of interesting, and that's the idea that our freedom really scares us, that one of the objections to existentialism just seems to be based on fear, the idea that our freedom makes us really uncomfortable, and how many and maybe most of us try to deny the idea that we even have this freedom, right? How many times have you said, well, I can't really do that because fill in reason here, I can't really do that because fill in reason here. We have all of these things that are destroying our ability to make free choices on our own, and even when we don't, uh, we invent them. So let's take an example here. Look at two students writing a math test, right? Let's say both of them fail that test. The one student will look at her situation and say, well, I didn't get a chance to study last night. I had to go to work late, and the teacher is a horrible teacher. The review sheet was nonsense. It didn't you know, include some of the stuff that I needed. I've been working really hard. I didn't get much sleep. That's why I failed. That same student will look at the student next to her who failed and say, her? She failed the test just because she's not very good at math. We deny our own freedom. We deny our own responsibility because it's easier that way. One of the sections of the book that I really do like is called Freedom and Liberation. And she discusses oppression. It kind of foreshadows what's to come in her writing. And the idea that oppressors are people who deny other people's freedom and treat others like objects to be used for their own ends rather than just entities with free will. She argues that oppressors in a society trick those who oppress them into believing that oppression rather than freedom is the natural order of the world. Beauvoir argues that violence is just sometimes when it's a liberating action taken by the oppressed people to topple their oppressors and reclaim their natural freedom. Think the uh, French-Algerian War again. She argues that it is the that it's ethical in in some situations for the oppressed people to treat their oppressors as less than fully human and to forcefully kind of constrain their freedom if it's necessary to achieve the freedom of un of others. Along with Sartre's being in nothingness, the ethics of ambiguity is pretty essential if you want to kind of understand existentialism at all. And as a real bonus, it's much easier to read. But uh, you are not going to be so lucky with this with her next one right the next one is the work that Beauvoir is most well known for it, it is a must read book I think along with a couple other books it should be mandatory reading before students graduate from high school but it's not easy it is just under a thousand pages long parts of this are dense and and some would say overladen with examples this is going to be hard work but it's also been called, quote, one of the few great books of our time. It is fierce and wrathful 
and she writes with an urgency that seems impossible in a book that's so huge and it really entered western society as like a bombshell it is called the second sex and it was written in 1949 over a 14 month period it's still regarded as a major work of feminist philosophy and the beginning of the second wave of feminism it was banned by the catholic church the book was exalted and it was condemned she was called a visionary she was called a devil all because of this book in it she asks what is a woman she argues that man's considered the default men are the default human being you think of an average person you think of a guy right while a woman is considered the other quote thus humanity is male and man defines woman not herself but as relative to him her famous quote one is not born but rather becomes a woman is kind of the main thesis of this book that a woman's role in society has been constructed and her subordination as such has been constructed as well there's nothing natural about that it's not based on biology necessarily it's not strictly based on physiology it's a construct designed to keep women subordinate she uses two terms transcendent and eminent or transcendence and eminence these words are not regular words in our vocabulary anymore eminent would be existing eminence would be something that exists on a regular plane of life transcendent is above and beyond that that thing which is going to survive perhaps past your lifetime you write a major work a major novel music something like that that will survive your death that will be transcendent it will be passed on right and what she describes is that transcendent traits active creative productive powerful kind of imposing yourself on the world that you live these traits are encouraged in men and in young boys but but eminent traits traits things to do with the here and now right passive static immersed in life right now these things are encouraged in girls and women this can't be a surprise then that women spend most of their time involved with imminent things and not transcendent things even from a young age uh, young boys are called little men and they're told to go off and do something go do something cool go run around be active investigate the world impose your will on the world go do something right young girls are taught exactly the opposite she argues they're given dolls they're given pretend makeup kits they're rewarded for doing quiet and calm activities inside the home if you want if you want a good example of this in a modern day and age look at the lego friends line of toys versus like the boy lego that's out there at your local toy store right the lego friends has like the beauty salon the ice cream parlor right the hairstylist place um whereas lego lego for boys is dragons and space lego and knights and castles and stuff or if you want another example look at the look at the boy toys and the girl toys quotes around all of those when you go through a mcdonald's for the happy meal the boy toy is going to be something active and and actionable whereas the girl toy is going to be something much more passive young men are more likely to be in sports as they grow up they are more likely to be called on in school they're more likely to get away with with um, more active and aggressive behavior uh, that whole boys will be boys thing is still alive and well this goes on into adulthood if a if a woman as an adult is demanding then she is uh, an assertive bitch whereas 
an adult male's default is supposed to be assertive. If, a, if an adult male is not assertive enough, then he's a wimp. So it's expected that, he, that a man be assertive, but if a woman is assertive, she's just being bitchy. She even takes this so far, Beauvoir, as to say there is no maternal instinct that is inherent in anyone. Right? It's simply an idea cultivated by society. A maternal instinct is imposed on half the society because it, it keeps them subdued, confined. It keeps them subordinate. If the role of child rearing is imposed on women, that takes them out of the game. They can no longer be economically independent. But this isn't a new thing, she's saying. This, this has been happening throughout all of history. In ancient times, you go back to ancient Greece, women were nearly slaves in most places in ancient Greece, with the exception of Sparta. In Roman times, things got a little bit better. Organized monotheism didn't really help women at all, and the early church just simply refused to acknowledge that any women could be in leadership positions. God clearly made man in his image, and women, woman, was an afterthought. Women are taught to worship a male god with a male religious hierarchy, and it's only by accepting this can a woman achieve salvation. She goes on and she talks about the Industrial Revolution and how this allowed women some form of escape from their home lives, but their work was menial and involved little pay. Women's income was never enough to actually support a family independently. It was always designed to be secondary. This was picked up by most major writers in the European tradition. They have espoused negative views of women forever. Poe, Goethe, Shakespeare, it goes on and on. Almost all of them, she says, have viewed women in a negative light. Today, most movies, television shows, or books are written by men still, and the female characters in these works are just the male representation of what they think women are all about. For women, they are always in the position of the other. They are the outsider in a male-dominated system. The historical use of the word man throughout all of history makes this kind of clear. We try to update phrases like, you know, all men are created equal, and we say things like, well, what they meant was all people, men and women. But it's not lost on people that women are just not a part of the historical discourse. Men are the self. They are fully formed. They are independent individuals, and women are this mysterious kind of non-male other that exist outside of regular society. I mean, remember, in, in 1878, the British Medical Journal wrote, that this is a quote, it is an indisputable fact that meat goes bad when touched by menstruating women. That's mind-blowing. Like, this lack of understanding uh, throughout history is going to invariably be transferred onto everybody in the male population and eventually everybody in the entire population. Men saw, you know, female fertility as disgusting and imposed this disgust onto the rest of the entire population. She goes on and attacks the entire institution of marriage, saying that the idea of two people satisfying each other's needs, like not just sexually, but like practical and social needs as well, is just absurd. Right? Married life for women is designed to be completely unsatisfying. Women are supposed to somehow gain fulfillment through cleaning and baking and raising children. Although this has been questioned a great deal, right? Numerous studies have actually found that men receive many health and physical benefits from marriage and women don't. A recent AARP study or survey, sorry, found that found that about 70% of divorces were initiated by women. That's almost three out of four divorces that are started by women. Obviously, one gender is a little less pleased with the institution of marriage than the other. 
Beauvoir writes that for a lot of married women, marriage and the demands of marriage are like, quote, holding away death, but also refusing life. And that a woman in reality is more of a wife servant. Beauvoir writes that a woman finds her dignity only in accepting her kind of servitude, where she is a, a quote, bed servant and a, quote, housework servant. I mean, she's weaned away from her family that she grows up with, and she only finds disappointment when she gets married. Uh, she still doesn't truly have her own identity. Instead of being the daughter of a father, now she's the wife to a husband. She is still without her own definition. She gives up her father's family name in a ceremony where father walks her down the aisle and gives her to another male and then takes his name. The same way that a slave would take the last name of their owner upon purchase, their name, their identity, is only important due to the male that she is most closely aligned with. And her quote is, marriage almost always destroys women. Many other social issues kind of see the same pattern of patriarchy borne out again and again and again. Um, abortions are medically safe procedures, yet they're forbidden by the church and by big sectors of the population. This conflicts with the church's own sort of doctrine on baptisms, she says. In reality, people that are pro-life are actually just pro-forced pregnancy, and it shows what she calls um, a masculine sadism towards women. In pregnancy and in the rearing of children, women in society lose themselves because now they are just a passive instrument for birth and feeding. Once the kids go and they grow up and they leave, women might choose to live kind of vicariously through their kids, and when they're gone, they're left kind of with nothing. Right? They're married to a man who didn't really see them as fully human. She will have sacrificed herself for the marriage and the children, and she's now expected to kind of pass her remaining years doing like needlepoint and reading and drinking tea and doing charitable stuff in the community. All of this doesn't affect her husband really at all because he had his outside life the entire time. It was never contingent on his family status in the first place. Now, there are portions of this, of course, that sound dated, and you can tell that it's written in the late 1940s, 1950s, but, but it is still, of course, relevant. She writes on, at any point in time, it's useless to try to figure out which gender is superior. It's a silly question without an answer. But the one thing that does seem obvious is that the man's situation is infinitely preferable. It's not that women are better than men. She's not trying to say that. They just have never had the chance to truly see what they're capable of. And she says that it's high time that women, quote, be left to take their own chances. In her conclusion, she looks forward to a future when women and men are equal, something that she said was promised under the communist revolutions, or specifically the Soviet revolution, but it never actually delivered. To carry off this supreme victory, she says, men and women must, among other things, and beyond their natural differentiations, unequivocally affirm their brotherhood. Beauvoir was embraced by the feminist movements of the 1970s. She participated in demonstrations and continued to write and lecture on the situation of women. She signed petitions in, um, due to the times and due to a lot of these controversial ideas and actions, she and uh, Sartre had this really high public profile, like rock stars, that most philosophers never really achieve uh, in their lifetime or after their lifetime. But she was often kind of unfairly relegated to Sartre's partner, like she was some sort of disciple of existentialism and, and not an intellectual leader of her own right. A lot of people ignored the fact that her ideas were completely independent of Sartre, and she went off in completely different directions a number of times. Sartre died in 1980, 
and Beauvoir published most of the letters and writings between them. She edited them pretty heavily to spare the feelings of some people and change some names uh, into pseudonyms, of course. In 1981, she wrote an account of Sartre's Last Days, as well as a piece entitled Feminism, Alive Well and in Constant Danger. She died of pneumonia in 1986 in Paris and was buried next to Sartre. Now, I don't want to leave you with the idea that de Beauvoir's contributions are solely in the area of feminist philosophy, as though that wouldn't be enough somehow. But remember, Beauvoir is a towering intellect here. Her contributions to feminism and existentialism and activism, and yes, to socialism. She dared to ask what it means for a society when half of its population is debased and demeaned and seen as subhuman by the other half. For an entire generation of women, and some men who were intelligent and I guess confident enough to listen, Simone de Beauvoir's ideas were truly revolutionary. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Oh. Well done, my 